Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's February 20th. 1472, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. A typical 15th century dowry for a well-off young woman might include cash, gold, furniture, jewellery, even livestock. But it didn't typically include 170 islands in the North Sea. (laughs) Yet it was today in history that a dowry led to Scotland formally annexing the Orkney and Shetland Isles, ending 600 years of Norwegian rule. Yes, and the whole business of giving these islands away as a bit of a wedding gift was an effort to calm tensions between Scotland and Denmark. So King James III was uh, betrothed to Margaret of Denmark, who was daughter of Christian I, who was the king of the recently unified Denmark and Norway together. And basically this marriage was aimed at quelling a long-standing tax-related feud between these two powers, specifically Scotland and Denmark slash Norway. And so this dowry was arranged, but the thing was that the, that Christian was a little bit short of money himself. So he was meant to pay 50,000 Rhenish florins, but given that he didn't have that money to hand, he was like, well, can I just give you these like islands of Orkney and Shetland? And it turned out that that was sufficient for his intended recipient. Well, indeed, and it was well targeted because uh, James III's father, James II, had long wanted these islands. And so now James III was able to get them fair and square. This did actually end up being seen as one of the great victories of his reign, really, Mm. being able to claim these islands for Scotland. Because... I mean, I suppose we've all grown up in a post-1472 world. (laughs) It never occurred to me that Orkney and Shetland were part of any other country Mm. um, apart from Scotland and or Britain. But actually, you know, if you look on a map, Shetland is closer to Bergen than it is to Aberdeen. Mm. It is 900 miles north of London, Mm. which is where many of its laws are still being written now. So it was once a Viking stronghold. Yeah, Viking raiders had established dominance in the Orkney and Shetland Isles in the 800s. By this time, it was part of the Pictish kingdom. And they used the islands. It was a handy base for their raids. And then the warrior king, Harold Fairhair, who was the first king of a unified Norway, he drove the raiders out. And in 875, he annexed the islands to Norway. And straight after this, you got a stream of Norse settlers who began arriving on the islands. And this is the... It's not quite clear, you know, because it's all been very distant history, whether the displacement of the Pictish language and culture was a matter of assimilation over generations or violent suppression. But genetic analysis has suggested that there was a lot of intermixing. And this is where a new language started developing, a language called Norn, mm. that the islanders would go on to speak for hundreds of That's years. That's how Arian the... says known. <laughs> <laughs> Norn's not. <laughs> and this was a, a dialect of, of Old Norse. You know, it wasn't related to 
English or Old English as we would recognise it. And this would go on until the 1700s. Apparently, as late as the mid-1700s, there were still older people on the island who spoke Norn as their first language. Norn words are apparently still used to describe <laughs> the colours and pattern variations in the native sheep of both Shetland and Orkney, which must be so intensely specific that there's no other word in any other language <laughs> and you have to <laughs> fall back on a dead language to do that. Um, Look, if you Norn, you Norn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are non unknowns and there oh, are non <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, We should talk about this marriage. So when Margaret married James, she was 13. Mm. I know that people got married young then, but she was 13. He was 17, to be fair, so it wasn't like ultra creepy, but still. Um, and this was a big deal. Holyrood wedding... Margaret got a dower too, one third of the crown revenues, plus Linlithgow Palace and Dune Castle. Mm. Not bad. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to marry a Scot, get a castle. (laughs) But Christian made this arrangement regarding Shetland and Orkney, I think, never really intending to pay for it. Mm. I, there was definitely, I think the political undertone was that he couldn't tell the islands he was giving them away. Right. But at the same time, everyone knew that he didn't have 60,000 florins or guilders, as they were called, to pay for the dowry. That's about 6.5 million euros today. Yeah. Initially, he put down Orkney as security, the Orkney Isles. And the problem was that he was supposed to be then paying 10,000 florins down, but he could only come up with 2,000 of them. So it was later the same year he had to throw in Shetland as well. Yeah. And he wrote a letter to his subject, and this sort of speaks to why he couldn't just sell them the islands or give them the islands as a dowry. He wrote a letter to his subjects, and in this letter he beseeches them to obey the Scottish king and pay their taxes to him until he can afford to redeem them. So there was definitely at least formally this idea that this was just a temporary arrangement. Yeah, the Norwegian and Danish councils of the realm were both reputedly furious with the whole move because they regarded the whole pawning of these key islands as not just an embarrassment, but also an affront to kind of the dignity of the countries. And so they forced King Hans, who was Christian's successor, and then all of Hans's successors to swear an oath at their coronation that they would redeem the pledge and take back the islands. And each king that came after Christian duly did swear. But pretty much throughout the entire sort of subsequent history, none of these kings actually did anything about it. And there were opportunities. So in 1514, for example, John Stuart, who is the Duke of Albany and Regent of Scotland at the time, needed soldiers for a war with England, and he hoped to get 6,000 of them from, by this time, Christian II of Denmark. And in return, he was like, look, I'll give you these islands back, I guess, because they just weren't that useful. Uh, And what he needed crucially at that moment, was soldiers. It's worth lingering on why that would have been a mistake. Yeah. So this turned out to be a very savvy purchase because the oil and gas industry in Scotland is quite dependent yes. on all of the water around these islands. Obviously, James III didn't know that that was coming down the pipe. No. But I mean, you know, we'd have a very different economy without these. Absolutely. And I just think that at the time, particularly because the Danish and the Norwegian Empire was looking to the east, the the stuff that was over to their west was just a bit less important. And so the whole business of trying to reclaim these islands that had no natural economic advantage was just low down their priority list. 
Yeah, I think my favourite in the annals of kind of slightly lame attempts to get the islands back was 1585, when a Danish delegation headed by a respected lawyer arrived in Scotland to try and persuade James VI to accept the Danish claim. He apparently was subjected to this very long lecture about how the islands really belonged to Norway and Denmark all along. And I love this. James told the delegation that he would love to go and find out more about this, look it up in his archives. But there was this plague outbreak, so he, he couldn't get back to the library. <laughs> So instead, he just gave them some gold chains and told them to go home. And that was basically the last of it. It's interesting just how laid back all of these kings were about just trading these islands. And I wonder whether that's because the locals kind of did feel equal part Scandinavian and Scottish. like that. And that's still the case, isn't it? If you look on the sort of tourist websites now for... Orkney and Shetlands. Obviously, there's a stronger Scottish identity these days. But even so, there's lots of references to the Viking heritage, to the architecture, even stuff that's been built in the last hundred years, Mm. looking Scandinavian. You know, I think people there have their own distinct identity and feel quite relaxed about it being the product of two different distinct cultures. Mm. Well, even though Norway didn't particularly have any love for Shetland, Shetland certainly continued to love Norway. And when as late as 1906, the union between Norway and Sweden ended, Shetland authorities sent a letter to the then King Haakon VII, which said, Today, no, inverted commas, foreign flag is more familiar or more welcome on our vows and havens than that of Norway. And Shetlanders continue to look upon Norway as their motherland and recall with pride and affection the time when their forefathers were under the rule of the kings of Norway. So that affection did continue at least in one direction and it was back to the empire of Scandinavia. I think part of that comes from the fact that Orkney and Shetland had really important status as part of the Norwegian, you know, whatever you want to call it, empire. They were both ruled by what was called the Jarl of Orkney. And although it's linguistically related to the word Earl, it was actually much more important. The Jarl of Orkney was the second most prestigious place in Norway below that of King. And just being handed over these islands turned out to be the thing that really was the making of James III's reputation on the basis that Scotland had now swollen to to its largest ever extent, and he had sort of overseen that, even though it was just handed to him on a platter. Yeah, unfortunately, his marriage wasn't so happy. Uh, Margaret was very popular with the public, unlike James, and therefore he was perceived to be jealous of her popularity. And possibly, rumour was, you know, don't have to tread carefully, his lawyers aren't listening, (laughs) rumour was that he was responsible for her poisoning when she died in Stirling Castle in 1486. And when that rumour got out, James's 15-year-old son, the future James IV, started supporting rebels. And then James III was um, killed in mysterious circumstances. And then got buried alongside Queen Margaret. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow was no mention of spooky electricity, just the positive associations of the Telegraph. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. DLN's Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.